Hey, this is Josh Kennedy from the Black Moods, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining me. Today, we've got Oscar-nominated director and producer Allison Elwood on the show. Her listed documentaries are impressive, to say the least. But today we're going to focus on her well-known music documentaries, including The History of the Eagles, Laurel Canyon, A Place in Time, Magic Trip, Ken Kesey's Search for a Cool Place, and most recently, The Go-Go's. So Allison's going to share some behind-the-scenes stories, and we're also going to discuss some memorable moments, including how the Eagles documentary actually mended some broken relationships within the band. And we're definitely going to talk about what's next for Allison as well. She's got another documentary coming up, and as a hint, this artist was known as being so unusual in the 80s. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, so let's get started. Allison, it's so great to have you on. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Sure. You've done some incredible work. So from a documentary perspective, you've produced and directed American Jihad, Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, Gonzo, The Life and Work of Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, and many more. But given the premise of this show, I, of course, want to focus on the music documentaries because Mm -hmm. you have directed some of the best music documentaries I've seen. Thank you. Now, Laurel Canyon, A Place in Time, The History of the Eagles, The Go-Go's, Magic Trip, Ken Kesey's Search for a Cool Place. I mean, some really great work, some really great storytelling that I want to get into today. Great. Thanks. So before I do that, though, I think I want, just out of my own curiosity, I want to go back in time. Were you a big music buff growing up? I mean, particularly of the California sound. I mean, I wasn't, I mean, I just loved music. I love all different types of music. Um, I wasn't, didn't necessarily gravitate to the California sound. It just was part of my youth. Um, But I was exposed to lots of different types of music. Unfortunately, can't sing or play anything. Yeah, me neither. (laughs) Didn't get those scenes. (laughs) No, no, that's all right. We'll just talk to the people that do all that. (laughs) Share their story. Now, did these documentaries then kind of foster a greater love for that music? I mean, I've always had a love for all of the music. I've been fans of the bands that I've, you know, thankfully and luckily I've been fans of the bands I've worked on. Um, and, you know, it, it's it, it's really fun when you get to understand what was behind the music and the songs and everything. And I know some artists don't like to really explain all, all the time what their music is about. And, and I respect that as well. But to understand the vibe that it came from and where they were in their lives when they wrote or came up with these different songs um, and the meanings that they have for them personally. It is fun to get into that. And then you take take it and make it your own as well. Exactly. And when you get the backstory on some of these songs, it just, I don't know, it fosters a deeper appreciation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you think to yourself, oh, okay, you know, I went through that too. <laughs> you wrote a great wrote a great song about it. Well, sure. I guess in terms of Laurel Canyon, the documentary, you know, I'm, I'm pretty well versed in that scene. Um, So I can say that in watching the documentary, I was impressed by how comprehensive it was. Nothing was left out. You told it beautifully in two parts. So I guess that kind of begs the question, like, 
in producing a documentary like Laurel Canyon, you know, um, for those of us that are not in, in the industry, where do you even start? Because you look at the Go-Go's or you look at the Eagles and there's a band and there's a timeline, there's a trajectory. But Laurel Canyon, I mean, there were so many different bands, so many different artists, storylines. How did you go about even crafting that? Well, we wanted it to be immersive and experiential from the beginning. So we decided that we would not do any on-camera interviews. Everything would be audio only. And anytime anyone appeared, it would be back in the time. So that you sort of stay with them in that moment. That also obviously helped us with, a, with the problem that some of the artists are sadly no longer with us. So we couldn't interview them. So it kind of evened the playing field. And what we what we discovered early on, it was a very tricky one to structure. Um, I, I won't lie about that. It was really hard to come by. Um, but Anoush Terzaki and my um, editor on that project was brilliant and the producers were amazing. And what we found were little connections between yes. bands and like one band would fall apart and members would go and form this and form that. So there really was kind of a timeline, but you had to find it. It yeah. was, it's not an obvious one. Um, but once we started finding those little moments, um, we knew that, that we had something. And one of the most magical things happened on the very first day of shooting with Henry Diltz, the photographer, who's, we also worked with him on the Eagles. He's a dear friend, just adore him. Yeah. Um, he, we were just setting up and he got the phone call um, about um, Peter right. Tork when Peter Tork died that day. And, and I'm just like, roll, 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 because I knew, because the monkeys were going to be a tricky one to figure out how to weave into that story. But they were very much a part of it organically. And then that phone call happened. We had a contemporaneous way to start telling that story. And then you sort of back into how they were involved. And it's, that was just a magical moment. But it was those sorts of moments that we kept finding. You gave me goosebumps in telling you that because I also know that Peter Tork was, I think, a friend of Henry's as well. He was a friend of Henry's and a really good friend of Nareet Wild, the other photographer that That's we worked right. with, very close friends with her. That's right. Um, so yeah. it's a particularly poignant moment. Yeah. And I guess in, in speaking of Nareet Wild and Henry Diltz, so all the other interviews were off camera. I mean, right. were there was there anybody that, you know, obviously Nareet and Henry kind of take you through? Yeah, they're, they're our guides. Yeah. yeah, they're the guides through the story, but were there any that, you know, you didn't get and you just had to kind of convert to all, you know, past past footage, past interviews? Um, Joni Mitchell wouldn't do an interview. That's very common for her. Um, and she was not in the best of health at that moment. I think if we were to do it now, she might agree to have done it. But there were so many recordings and interviews of her in the past that we were able to rely on those. Um Carol King and James Taylor, we wanted to get, but they also were not available to do this because um, they they were the two that I feel that I wish we'd been able to include, but because um, they were very much a part of the scene too, a little bit more peripheral, but still part of that part of that scene. I mean, Tapestry was written in Laurel Canyon, so yeah, right. And Sweet Baby James, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. those are those albums are very much connected with everything that happened during yes. that time. Yeah, there was another documentary happening about the two of them at the same time. So I think that might have fed into that. But like I said, there were plenty of other interviews from and we tried to work Carol in, um, but she never said anything in previous interviews about Laurel Canyon. So really? Yeah. Well, you know, it's fine. And we had really good researchers. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess. Yeah. I mean, maybe in past interviews, Laurel Canyon wasn't such a. I don't know, a zeitgeist maybe, or right. wasn't recognized as much. It's only in, you know, later years that you start looking back and go, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. some stuff went down. 
Yeah. And when you're doing these interviews, I would imagine, again, because I don't, you know, don't fully understand how you go about creating this magic, but you obviously do quite a bit of research before you sit mm -hmm. down with anybody and you have an idea of maybe the storyline you want to tell. But I'm sure that that can change quite a bit depending on what they tell you, what they reveal. Yeah. I mean, mostly, I mean, yes, I do research and teams of researchers that help me prepare for that. And I do my own research. Um, but really, I just keep these conversations, especially when it's audio only. And some of them I wasn't even present for. We were doing it over the phone. Um, some of them I was present for. But we just try to keep it really conversational. Yeah. And and then and then you find that those stories go in, in different directions. But doing audio only, it's actually a trick that Davis Guggenheim taught me years ago. He would always pre-interview people in audio only because people are much less self-conscious when they're not being photographed. It's true. Um, so you get a much more relaxed vibe out of the gate. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I think that that just helped to set the set the tone for it. Set the overall tone. Yeah. And in terms of the footage that you married with these interviews, where did you get all of that? <laughs> well, some of it we actually shot. We we started doing a lot of shooting on Super 8 um, and going and just making things look like it happened back then because so then it sort of seamlessly flows from one thing to the next. Oh, God. Again, we had amazing researchers who dug up footage that was just unbelievable. Um, you know, we had, a, we had a great team of people working on that. Um, on that on those two episodes it so, so some cool. stuff we found that was just magic and you know when you find those magic moments and some stuff came in at the last second we're like oh my god we have to restructure this whole thing <laughs> <laughs> we gotta include it <laughs> yeah. yeah well like in the beginning when you're behind that um the car the little convertible mm -hmm. I, dumb question i'm gonna ask this but was that shot on super eight or was that actual footage from back in the no we shot that we shot that both we shot those cars Super 8 and from helicopter and video. Ah, okay. I, I was like, this is so cool. I mean, it really draws you in. It's kind of like you're literally, you're making your entrance into the scene, you know? Yep. Back into the little capillaries and the hidden roads and things like that. Yep. And in terms of footage, I have to ask you, did you happen upon the video footage that Mickey Dolans took that day at that barbecue, you know what I'm going to ask it. Mama Cass's house, Henry Dill. Everybody talks about it. Either Mickey Dolans is holding on to that. <clears throat> when I was interviewing Nareet, we were shooting with her, and and there was this 16 millimeter reel of footage on, it like buried in her bookshelf. And I just said, Nareet, do you know what that is? And she said, I have no idea. It's been there for years. I'm like, that's the Mickey Dolans footage. <laughs> <laughs> Holy grail. <laughs> it was nothing. It was like, I don't even, it was like filler or something. Oh man. I mean, I guess if I was Mickey, I'd be, I'd be holding on to it too. <laughs> I, it, I suspect that that footage is mythology and that Mickey probably was in a state of mind that he forgot to load the camera. <laughs> and he would have never admit it. <laughs> yeah. That's my feeling. <laughs> You know, it's interesting because speaking of the monkeys, I, I'm a huge monkeys fan. In fact, the first concert I ever saw was a monkeys concert, oh, wow. believe it or not. They were touring in Palm Springs and I went to go oh. see them. But, you know, when you look back, they were a ma manufactured band, but they were actually truly talented and they yeah. were highly respected. They were very respected, yeah. Everybody in, the, uh, in that scene, they did play their instruments, you know. 
Um, I know that the first album, I think they employed the Wrecking Crew, but after that, they were pretty much like, hey, we want to play all of our own instruments. We want to prove to people that we are indeed musicians. Yeah, well, they got better. I mean, Peter was a musician to begin with. The others weren't weren't so much, um, but they they wanted to improve. They wanted to embrace their craft. And yeah. you got to have so much respect for them. But they were hugely respected in the community. But a lot of it also, I think, has to do with they were making so much money at a time when all those artists were still struggling. They were throwing right. at parties. <laughs> <laughs> so people wanted somewhere to go. They were going to be from the market. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of stories about Peter Tork's swimming pool. <laughs> oh, yeah, because he was a nudist, right? Yeah, yeah. And so everybody else kind of followed suit. No, yep. <laughs> that's yeah. so funny. The drop suit. <laughs> the drop suit. Yeah. And in terms of the scene itself, I know the birds were the ones that were kind of early on, the early mm-hmm. settlers, so to speak. But it sounds like from everything I've read and watched that Frank Zappa was really um, his move up to Tom Mix's cabin was really the impetus for starting the scene. I don't no, know. Absolutely right. He was kind of the one that after him, it's everybody seemed to follow. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's what happened. And and then, you know, next thing you know, everyone's there. And then there was a mass exodus, which was really sad. Um, yeah. You know, and it, um, it, it's funny, another series I'm, I don't know that it's happening or not, is about the Wonderland murders that happened oh. the next decade in the 80s. And um, it's like the, the negative image of what happened in, you know, with the seeds of the drugs were there. Um, but, you know, the drugs that were expanding minds youthful minds were then suddenly designed to addict them, you know? Right, right. It wasn't about expanding your art anymore. Right. Speaking of of addiction, I want to ask you about one of my favorite bands. And I've had some conversations with people about this, The Doors. Yeah. So when people think of Laurel Canyon, they think of The Doors. They did live there. Love Street was, you know, written there right by the Country Mart there and everything. But they were they weren't immersed in the scene from a communal standpoint. They weren't there. They were these outliers that I love what Jim Ladd says. You know, and I know other people have said this before, but they were they were the L.A. music at night. At night. I love that line from Jim. (laughs) And it's it's so true. But. It's funny because they were really outliers. They were not part of the scene from what I understand. No, they really weren't. I mean, Jim didn't live there all that long. Actually, there there wasn't that same overlap with with the others that was there. So I think it was, you know, I think they might have been more immersed had they been there at the same time. But Jim wasn't there for terribly long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't remember which, which of the other ones. Was it Ray or no, Ray was always in Venice. It was Bobby, I think, had a place up in the canyon, but I guess he was there kind of a short period of time too. They just weren't interacting in the same way. Yeah, you know? but you just can't tell that story without the doors. That's actually the, I've been trying to make the, the Laurel Canyon story f- for about 20 years because I was obsessed with the doors. And when oh. I looked into the doors years ago, I started discovering all these links to other artists and this scene in Laurel Canyon. So I've been trying to do this for years and years and years. So when it came back to me, Alex called me one day and said, you want to do Laurel Canyon? I'm like, are you kidding? You know, I've been trying to do this for years. (laughs) But I'm obsessed with the doors. (laughs) So am I. 
And what's interesting about their music too is that there's a lot of um, joyful sounds coming mm-hmm. out of you know Laurel Canyon, whether it's the monkeys or you're looking at the turtles or whoever yeah. it might be. So happy together, but. The doors, there was a different dimension to them. You could explore that lightness and then that darkness. Yes. And I think for a lot of young kids that are coming up that are exposed to that music, just having that outlet yeah. um, is important. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, they were complicated. And Jim, of course, was extremely complicated um, as as a character and, and, you know, had a real darkness about him, um, mm-hmm. which sadly was mostly to do with alcohol, I think, or at least it brought out the darkness in him. Right. He wasn't like a big druggie like everybody thinks. I mean, he did drugs like all of them did, but his big issue was, was booze. Was alcohol. Yeah. Was alcohol. Now, how did the events, you know, things stacked up so much towards the end of 69? Mm-hmm. You know, you had... Um, you had Altamont, you had the Manson murders, and you had Woodstock. Yeah. But you had this, you know, this impeccable apex, essentially, of the whole kind of hippie scene and the movement with Woodstock. Mm-hmm. But then subsequent to that, just the lowest of lows with Altamont. Right. right. How did that change the scene? I think it profoundly changed it. I mean, you know, I think... Um... Crosby said it the best, you know, he started carrying a gun, you know, you, and people started locking their doors and it was an open, you know, it was, it, it revealed the dark undertones that, that exist in any society, honestly. And, you know, Manson wanted to be a rock and roll star. And, you know, that was his whole connection to that scene to begin with, is that he was, you know, was a rejected wannabe rock, rock star. And, you know, just how how the drugs and the darkness, it, it, I mean, it, it changed everything. Literally people started locking their doors. Um, and then the scene, you know, as the seventies progressed, coincided with the artists becoming successful and wealthy. Um, so they had more money, more drugs, they were on the road a lot more. So the scene kind of changed because of that too, but it it set the, it, it, it exposed the darkness underneath. and. The end of episode one was I was obsessed with that image of the girls, the Manson girls coming over the cliff. And so many people were looking at that going, what the hell is that? And I'm like, if you don't know, doesn't matter. Some people that know will know what that is. And they're coming in and they're climbing up the cliff and they're taking over. Yes. Yes. And that singing in the background gives you chills and you know what you're in for. Yeah. You know, it, it this scene did change so much just in terms yeah. of, yeah, that communal vibe was gone. Yeah. But the 70s were very different. Mm-hmm. And I mean, literally at the onset. And David Geffen seems mm-hmm. to be the impetus for a lot of that change, just in terms of the sound yeah. and the business of it. I wanted to get your take on that because he's mentioned, you know, he's mentioned in the documentary. No, no, he's, we interviewed him for it. His voice is very much, I mean, he was, he always, I mean, he just had such a knack for knowing how to find talent and what talent was going to rise to the top. You've got to, whatever you think of Geffen, you've got to credit him that. He certainly knows that. Yeah, he changed the business end of it for sure. Um, But the artists got smarter about the business end of it because a lot of the artists weren't smart about the business part of it 
going into it. So they, you know, kept getting screwed with, you know, publishing and labels and all that. And so the artists got smarter as they went along too. And I think Geffen had a lot to do with that. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, he's a, he's a complicated character. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. How was it to interview him? Uh, I I mean, he, he gave us some really great lines and he understood the importance of it. Um, but he's very uh, opinionated about how you phrase questions. <laughs> so he's, he's tricky, but he's um, tricky. he has some great lines and he was a huge part of the scene. He was. Do you? And the artist respected him. Sure. Sure. After everything he did. I mean, do you think there would be a Jackson Brown or an Eagles without David Gevin? I now, I mean, I think they would have finally, you know, they would have found their way somehow, but I think that he certainly expedited it and made them really big, really fast. Um, and Jackson, he was huge. And, but Elliot Roberts also played a huge role in that too. And, and we, you know, I feel very fortunate that I was the last person, sad, but sad, but fortunate that I was the last person to interview Elliot um, really? before he passed away. And, you know, he was so you know, lovely on the phone and in such great spirits. And, you know, we had no idea anything was even wrong. And then he was gone like six weeks later. It was shocking. Yeah. What did he die of? I can't remember. It was some strange kind of rare disease and his family was keeping it under wraps and everything. Um, but, you know, one when we were talking, because we talked for like, I don't know, close to three hours, I think. It was on the phone and we had a sound recorder there recording him. and. Um, at one point we got sidetracked and he started talking about Tracy Chapman and he said, what an incredible story she has and what an incredible artist and he said, that's who you should be focusing on next. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. And then, and then sadly Elliot died. And then by the time we finished this COVID hit, so I didn't have an opportunity to, so I'm trying to, trying to convince Tracy to, to do this um to do a film she doesn't want to do anything media wise right now apparently but i'm going to try to reach out to her because he was just spoke so highly of her sorry i got sidetracked <laughs> no no i know i love hearing this and it's like yeah. well you waited 20 years to do this film <laughs> exactly you can be patient <laughs> exactly Speaking of which, 20 years now, had you been pushing this? At your no, company? I pushed it initially and then I, you know, I just got, got busy doing other things. Um, and then the music rights just became so complicated. Um, they were complicated 20 years ago. And then some of it got a little bit easier because some of the, some of the um, labels consolidated or, or bought by other, Warner brought up, bought, bought up a bunch of stuff. So it got a little bit easier on that front. Um, but music in general for documentaries has been, you know, it was really great early on and now it's really tricky and, and very expensive. So I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure, especially with a film like that. Yeah. Um, one woman I did want to ask you about mm -hmm. was Linda Ronstadt. Yes. You got an interview with her. Yes. Just How is she? Is she just as lovely as she seems? Just absolutely lovely, delightful. Um, couldn't have been sweeter. We, we interviewed her at her home in San Francisco and it was very laid back. She was just lounging in a chair, chatting and 
She's just lovely. I'm a huge Linda Ronstadt fan and what a voice and to have her have, have lost that voice at, in her life, I think is just such a tragedy, but to have been able to sing like that for as long as she did and to, I mean, she made songs her own. I mean, songs that other, I mean, she never wrote her own music, right. um, which is, a, which is amazing. Um, and yet she was so respected by those singer songwriters too. Um, because she could take something and make it her own. And, and you know, as Don said that, you know, a lot of people said that, and it's true that she really resurrected Des Desperado because when the Eagles came out with that second album, the, <laughs> the label's like, they made a fucking cowboy record. <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't do well at first. And now, of course, it's considered a classic um, and people understand it more. But um, she, you know, resurrected that 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 song. Right, she took her out of that sophomore slump. Yeah. yeah. Her voice is so pure. Yeah. Um, and whatever song she chose, I mean, she she has a very good idea of where her voice will resonate. Yeah. And watching her story, I was just blown away. Um, but not to mention, she's another one where the Eagles may not have been, or at least not the you know the original lineup that uh, we all know and love. Would yeah, not have she's happened. the one I would credit with with the Eagles. <laughs> really? If it weren't for Linda, I don't think there would have been Eagles. <laughs> you know, and it's interesting, just the way like five or so years earlier, everybody was kind of helping each other where you had Crosby, Stills and Nash, you know, and, you know, helping out Joni Mitchell and vice versa and all these bands kind of coming together. It was really in the early seventies, Linda Ronstadt, the Eagles and Jackson Brown. Yeah. You know, they were the, the three voices that were really emblematic of the country rock sound at that time, the singer-songwriter sound at that time. Um, it's interesting to me, but when you interview these people, and I've always wondered this, you know, I guess with any interview, uh, when you're interviewing an artist or a musician about things that happened decades ago, yeah. do they have the same type of reverence for what happened that maybe the public does? Because to them, it was, you know, as Jackson Brown said, you know, time and place, and they've done so much since then. Yeah. I mean, it, it varies, honestly, from, from artist to artist. I mean, a lot of these, these folks have been interviewed so many times that keeping the interviews fresh is sometimes, you know, hard for them because they're like, oh man, we've gone over this a million times. Um, but I think in this one in particular, again, because I think it was audio only, I think that there was a, there was a little bit freer attitude. It felt more relaxed, conversational, talking about, this time, and I think it brought up this sense of nostalgia for all of them, looking back on on that particular time. Because when I interviewed Jackson, and this one was in person, um, you know, he basically said, because I knew him from the Eagles film, and yeah. he, did do it, he said, oh, she made me the most famous tea drinker in the world. <laughs> and, so yeah, you know, when I, we started the interview, and you know, I was saying, well, you know, it was such an amazing, an amazing time. And he goes, yeah, I don't really think so. And I'm like, what? <laughs> this interview is going to go well. <laughs> and then, you know, then at the end, he said, well, good luck with this. It's going to be tough. I was like, yeah, no pressure. <laughs> but he is the one that came up with the line, place and time. Really? Did um, he warm up at all during the course? It was really warm. It wasn't like he was being caustic or anything. He was just, he was like, yeah, it was just what was happening, you know. Um, you know, different people remember it differently. Yeah. Um, and when you're in it. You know what I mean? You're just trying to get through the day, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let alone seeing it as this, you know, epic time. 
Yeah. And he was a kid. He was like 17 years old when this was going on. It was oh, such yeah. a baby. <laughs> so young. I yeah. read the other day that he wrote these days at like 15 or 16. Yeah. It's amazing. Unbelievable. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Okay, guys, let's get back to the interview. And I guess jumping from um, Jackson Brown, you know, I want to jump into the Eagles. Mm -hmm. What, how did that come about? Were you a fan? Was that something that was exciting to take on at the time? Yeah, no, I was. I was a huge Eagles fan. I loved the music. Um, and that again came through Alex. Um, he just called me one day. You want to do a film about the Eagles? I'm like, yeah, love you. <laughs> um, so that was, yeah, that just happened and it was funded and we didn't have to, you know, it just happened right away, which was, which was great. Um, and one of my favorite things about that film was the healing that happened. And the same happened with the Go-Go's too. Um, Bernie and Glenn became friends again before Glenn passed away, thankfully. And Bernie actually oh. went back and toured with them a little bit, played with them, um, you know, because I think that seeing, I think Glenn seeing Bernie tell the story of pouring the beer on his head saying, yeah, that was a really disrespectful thing to do. And I, they made peace and they, he went back out on the road. And that's when, when there can be that kind of healing involved in a film that happens, that's extraordinary. And the same thing happened with the Go-Go's with yeah. all the hard, you know, the hard feelings that were at the end, even though they've been back together many, many times over the years, there was genuine healing because they got to hear them tell the story from the perspective of putting themselves back in that moment. So it felt raw and real again to them and they understood it from someone else's perspective. Right, to be able to, it was almost like they were having a conversation with each other again. Right. You know, exactly. A, a little bit more objectively speaking. 
Yeah. You look back on it a little wiser. And I think that's what I love about your movies, or, you know, the, the documentaries themselves, because it's not all, it's not all the highlights. Right. You know, there's, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And yeah. everybody knows that's how it went down. Right. right. You know? Right. Um, so you have to tell the story and you have to tell it truthfully. Exactly. And we, we make a pact. I mean, every time I go into these things, I'm like, I'm not making a hagiography about you guys. I don't want to, you know, I'm not putting you on pedestals, nor am I trying to, you know, do a, you know, VH1 behind the music, tear them down kind of thing. Right. You know, do something salacious. We want to tell an honest story that is, is about the people involved and about the music and the time and the, in you guys have to be honest with me and I'll be honest with you. And, and, and everyone's been thankfully thus far happy with the results. So. I guess in saying that, I want to ask you about Don Felder. Yeah. Um, you know, that was obviously emotional for him and he walked yeah. off, you know, yeah. camera at one point. Was there ever any reconciliation with that? Not with, not with them and, and, and Don Felder. I called Don Felder after that moment. Because all I asked him was, do you miss it? And he got really upset and walked out. It wasn't like he was mad. It was really just emotional, just emotional. because we'd wanted him to noodle, you know, Hotel California. He brought his guitars and we just hadn't gotten to that point yet. And I didn't, you know, I just said, do you miss it? And he started crying and walked off. So I called him and said, I'm so sorry that upset you. I didn't mean to upset you please come back. We wanted to film a little bit more with your guitars. And it just, it was too painful for him. There's just unfortunately bad blood there with those, with those boys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot's transpired. So that was the end of the interview. That was all you got at that point. That was, that was the end of it. I mean, the, the story of the Eagles is interesting because I mean, it's just their meteoric rise, yeah. you know, their fall and then their meteoric rise again. Yeah. You know, um, and there were a lot of players obviously throughout the years was everybody forthcoming with you? I mean, really, yeah, like you I mean, said, I, I want to tell a true story, but they they gave you all the nitty gritty. They did. And again, you know, we made the pact, said, if we're doing this, we were all doing it fully, honestly. And and they fully agreed. And uh, Joe Walsh, actually, when um, we screened with the cut with Don and Glenn first, and they once they approved, then we brought Joe in and Joe watched the film and said, holy shit, I didn't know we could be that honest. I want to do another second take on this. <laughs> so we did an, an, a round two with Joe and he told some other stories then. So Was he a lot more truthful in the second round? I mean, I thought he was really truthful the first time too, but he went into a little bit more of the nitty gritty on the second one. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. How was Don Henley? He's great. I mean, he's, he's, <laughs> He just wants, he just needs to speak perfect English and people don't speak perfect English. <laughs> you know? if, he, if he says something grammatically wrong, he makes you shift it. It's like, oh my God, Don, really? People don't talk like that. He, he's just a perfectionist, you know? Yeah. But, but he, and he was much ca more casual on um, Laurel Canyon. And he was like one of the last interviews because we had, we, we had some of the audio from the Eagles that they talked a bit about Laurel Canyon, not much. So we really did need him. To, and Glenn, unfortunately, was gone by then. Um, so Don did agree at the end to, to come on. We got him like, I think like the last week we were editing. Yeah. I saw them all play shortly before he passed. Yeah. Um, and they just put on a spectacular it's show. It's a good show. Yeah, it really is. You know, the fans were up and off their feet. There was yeah. a there was a brawl right in front of us. I'm like... <laughs> 
everybody was still high energy, you know? Now, I want to ask you about the album Hotel California. You know, it, it, it's an interesting album and it's probably the one they're best known for, you know, even though their greatest hits is what the best selling album of all time. Yeah. Um, but Hotel California spoke in depth about the decadence and the excess of L.A. in the 70s. Do you kind of feel like that was 1976? That was like an invisible marker of when things really shifted is specifically, you know, um, in L.A., just in terms of it becoming big business. There were new sounds on the scene, like mm -hmm. punk, glam rock. Yeah. I've always kind of looked at it as that invisible marker, and I wanted to get your take on that. I think so. I think, to be honest, I think the biggest difference that happened is the drugs changed, and it, it became cocaine. I think cocaine was just the killer of all that. It Because it, it went hand in hand with them making more money, because they could spend more money. And, you know, Jim Ladd and I were, went on about this. We talked about this for so long. It's like when the drugs, when it, when it became cocaine, it just, it lost the magic. And it, that was the marker. And 76 was about the time when that became so prevalent that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't getting high and playing music with your friends anymore. No, it was just rock stars behaving badly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to shift gears for a second and ask you about, um, you know, uh, Ken Casey, mm -hmm. because I'm familiar with that story. Um, but the fact that you got all this footage and mm -hmm. put together a movie that they had been trying to put together, that the Mary Bradsters had tried and failed to put together must have been sorry, no pun intended again, but must have been a trip. <laughs> it was. It <laughs> It was a nightmare. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> what a mess. Five years to restore the footage. UCLA did a restoration of the footage um, that um, Scorsese, the Scorsese fund paid for. But the footage was such a mess because they shot positive print and Ken cut the hell out of it for years off and on, kept trying to cut the, and they, I think at some point someone convinced him to make duplicates or something because we were able to restore some of it, but it was chopped to smithereens. It was in pieces all over the place. It literally took five years to restore. So we'd get a big batch in, we would do some work, we'd put it aside, do something else. I mean, I, I did a lot of other work in that five year period that it took to, to make that to make that film. And it was, I think we would, we would get super, super, super excited when we would find 30 seconds of sync. <laughs> if you look at the photographs of them filming half the time sandy who was the sound guy is like somewhere else pointing the microphone <laughs> action because they were high <laughs> it was so high god only knows whether he was recording or not i mean there were a lot of recordings but um you know it was a lot of gibberish and although he did have all the the great soundtrack of of cassidy driving the, the bus which was just I mean, just that constant jabber. I mean, that those were tapes that, that Sandy recorded. But, and I think we have like 
five seconds of sinking. Oh my God. And, and for those that aren't familiar, this is their road trip on their famous bus further from yeah. California all the way to New York, right? They're trying yeah. to get to the World's Fair. Yeah. And all their adventures along the way. Yeah. Man, when they talk about finally reaching the East Coast and how everybody just kind of started to bail out and the idea yeah. of actually having to get back on that bus and drive cross country again. Yeah, <laughs> I would have pieced out in Arizona. <laughs> I'm so done with this. Yeah. Oh, but I want to ask you about his acid parties because they were so famous at the yeah. time. And, you know, the dead was a regular at these acid parties. Do you kind of feel like he was, he was indirectly responsible for crafting that psychedelic sound coming out of uh, San Francisco? Uh, oh, he was a huge, huge part of it. I mean, Ken Kesey, he, his, acid trip was conducted by the CIA at Stanford, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they were doing, the CIA was doing mind tests on this stuff. And and I'm, I'm doing, I just finished a series with Michael Pollan called How to Change Your Mind. And he says of, of the CIA giving LSD to Ken Kesey was exactly the wrong person to give it. <laughs> <laughs> because he experienced it. And th that tape, by the way, in the animation sequence when he's tripping, that yeah, is yeah. real, real voice, really, when that actually happened. And you can see Nurse Ratchet appear in, you know, like these characters coming to life in his mind on that trip. Um, so he was huge, a huge part of, of that scene and, and, and wanted people to experience this, thought it was a freeing thing. Um, you know, and, you know, there's a lot of different opinions about whether it's, for the masses or should be done in a controlled setting. And um, anyway, he believed it was for the masses. And did <laughs> yeah, <that>. no kidding. <laughs> yeah. I have to say, watching the movie, I wasn't sold on taking LSD. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, other, the thing that Ken would do that I that I didn't like about him is he would spike people. I, that I think is bad. You shouldn't spike people. Mm -hmm. um, but again, he thought it was this mind freeing thing and nobody knew differently then. And he thought, you know, like Leary thought, if people just would do this, they won't want to won't want to kill each other anymore. Yeah. And that was a genuine part of what they felt and believed wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. um, so I can forgive them a little bit for some of their actions. They felt like they were contributing to the greater good by spiking yeah. your. <laughs> That's what they thought. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I had mentioned punk and I had mentioned disco mm -hmm. in, in the new sounds. I got to talk about the Go-Go's with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and talk about the highs and lows. And I loved how Belinda, uh, well, Belinda Carlisle specifically was so candid. And, yeah. you know, I think she was talking, it, at one point they were talking about, you know, the difference in pay and being a singer-songwriter mm -hmm. and being, you know, the front woman and all that. And she was like, ah, you know, I didn't fight it too much because I was such a fuck up. And yeah. I knew I was such a fuck up. Yeah. And I was like, good for you for being so candid about, you know, who you may have been at that time. Yeah. I mean, they were all really, really candid, I have to say. I mean, it's funny. They came to me. They wanted to make the film. 
they came to me and I said, I would love it. I'm a huge fan. That would be great. And we talked on the phone. We all chatted together a few times. Then they said, oh, no, we don't want to do it because they had been burned by the VH1 behind the music series where it was so salacious. And all they did was talk about the drugs and the exploits and all that craziness. Um, and I said, that's not what I do. You know that from looking at my films. Again, it's an honesty pact we make with one another. And, you know, I want to make this film, you got it, but we have to trust each other. And then we met in New York and we bonded over our animal rescue. We're all into animal rescue. And yes. once that happened, they were like, okay, we're going to do this because we trust you as a human being. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so that was the deal. You know, you'd be completely honest. And they they all were, so I did one interview with each of them. I thought we were going to have to do a couple and get back into it, but they were all really, really forthcoming. And all five of them met with you in New York? Uh, yeah, yeah, before we agreed, before we, agreed to do the filming you mean mm -hmm. yeah yeah all they fine. all came together all of them yeah. were in agreement and saying okay we're going to tell them because they were all on good terms at that point they had been yes. together and and yes. uh, hopefully had moved through a lot of you know what tore them apart yes but as i said there was a lot of healing that happened with the film because there were still even though they were back together and they are like sisters together they are hysterically funny um, the banter with them is just hilarious. You can't keep up. It's just boom, 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 boom. They're so smart and quick-witted. <laughs> very, very funny. Um, <laughs> but there were still some hurt feelings that that were lingering. And the film at Sundance, at, they came to me and they said, we, I can't tell you how, how profoundly this is impacting how I feel about, how we feel about each other now, that there's we feel like we really can, we're really back together now and we understand what we've been through and that we have gone through this uniquely and that we are who we are because of one another. And, and that was just great. Yeah. And you know, it's so easy for people to sit there and judge, but they were young girls and yeah. they were thrust into the spotlight, trying to navigate fame and for them to do what they did, you know, I mean, they were the first all girl band to play their instruments and write their songs to go to number one, right? Yep. I mean, that's an incredible feat. They still you know? are. <laughs> I mean, it, it, that's amazing to me. I know to see the yeah. footage of them singing together, you know, yeah. and playing the drums, and it's, yeah. it's still there. Yeah. And what was even cooler to me was that you kind of were doing these digs at the end about not being in the Rock Hall of Fame. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, they're inducted. <laughs> No, well, it was crazy because we, I was sure that we were going to have to take before we finish before we finished and went to Sundance that October. I was sure we were going to have to take those digs out because I was sure they were going to be nominated that year and that we'd have to take them out. And, and when they weren't, I was just so shocked. It was like, what? This is just crazy. So we left them in. <laughs> Do you think that the movie kind of pushed him over the edge a little bit? Got everybody, you know? Thinking, I think, oh, it, reminded, I think it reminded everybody of how great they were, who they were, that they're still out there, that they were the first to do this, still are the first to have ever done it, the only to have ever done it. And uh, I think it was a reminder. Um, if it was a bit of a push, that's great. I'm happy, you know, Jane actually thanked me at the at the induction. So she were you, oh, you were there. I wasn't there, but she oh. she, she thanked me. Um, she did. I didn't get to see it yet. Oh man. Okay. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. Do, is that part of the reason you think that they came to 
you? <laughs> they were like, we should be in the rock hall. This is how we're going to go about it. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's why they knew they wanted to document their story um, because they did deserve, they deserve to be in the rock hall. Um, you know, I don't know if they came to me per se with that in mind, but I think they understood the importance of telling their story while they're still gorgeously beautiful, even I though they're, know. you know, I did not have the same, you know, aging rock star issues with them as I've had with some people. <laughs> <laughs> they looked great. They in were fact, great. Belinda Carlisle, I saw her, God, it was before the pandemic, randomly. Yeah. I think she yeah. was at Hugo's in West Hollywood. Yeah. And I did a double take because first of all, you go, that's Belinda Carlisle. And then you do the second take and you're like, she looks fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah. They all look wonderful. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I was a big fan of the Go-Go's, always have been. So yeah. it was wonderful to to watch that story and then see them get the credit they deserve. Yeah, know? no, it was it was great. I actually produced the little segment at the Rock Hall of Fame for them for for the show, for the induction ceremony. Um, and I didn't tell them I did it until the day before. And uh so that was, that was really fun. And we did use a lot of little clips from the film, so. I wanna know what's next for you. You know, are you gonna make that Doors movie or? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. That's the, the doors. I would love to. The, it's very tricky licensing that music still. Um, it's one of the harder ones to license. Um, I am doing a, I'm very excited about one of the films I'm doing, Cindy Lauper. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we've, we've just got, got that one started. So um, we just did an interview with her in New York about a month ago. And we're starting to put that together. And that's going to, that's an amazing story too. Because, you know, so many, you know, unlike the meteoric rise to fame and crash, like so many of these band stories are, Cindy's, you know, people think she was 20 when she hit it big. She was 30. It was a long haul for her to get to where she really hit it big. And her story to get there is so fascinating. And she's an incredibly smart and funny, witty character. And her life story is really fascinating. I don't think a lot of people know much about it. And so it's really exciting. I don't know much about it. I would love to to learn more about her. Again, she was a big influence. You know, it's those early 80s, very yeah. impressionable years for me. <laughs> you know, watching yeah. girls just want to have fun on MTV. Yeah. These girls that, you know, you're looking up to them going, this is a great song. Everybody, <laughs> else, everybody else in the world thought so too. So when does that yeah. do? Uh, we're hoping 2023. She's um, got, she's doing the musical Working Girl, which will release the same year. So we're hoping that both things happen in 2023. So if you could do any any documentary on any band or artist or musician, what would it be? Would it be The Doors or? Um, it might be. I feel like I've, if the I've, licensing wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I know what the licensing thing is. So and I also feel like I've done an, so many bits of The Doors story. Um, I would like to do Jackson's story because I've told bits of his story in lots of films and and he's got a great story. Um, yeah. I mean, there's so many artists that I, that I am, am interested in, um, hard to pick just one, but Jackson, certainly Bonnie Raitt would be another one. Um, Bonnie Raitt. She's so yeah. great. Yeah. Oh gosh. There's a lot out there. There's still a lot of stories to be told. Yeah. And I want to, I also want to ask you just for my own interest, 
Yeah. You rescue horses. Yes. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Have you always done that? No. If you told me 10 years ago I'd have into horses and own a farm for many years, I would have laughed. But um, no, I just started, um, I don't know, like eight years ago. And we, I had a farm where we had a lot of stalls and, and quite a few rescues for a long time. And it just got to be too hard to run the farm um, with a, I mean, you know, full-time job being a farmer and a filmmaker. Yeah, it, no kidding. Stuff. So, so um, I sold the farm and the animals that were there went with someone else that I know. And then I brought my horse and donkey with me to the vineyard. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and those guys will be with me for as long as they're here. Allison, it takes a special person to do those things. No, I think that's awesome. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, like I said, it was how I bonded with the Go Go's. So it was yeah, all... yeah. <laughs> you never know. And then from there, they got the rock also. <laughs> oh, this has been so much fun. Thank you for Thank enduring. You. My... Sorry it took so long to schedule it. No, no, this was great. I mean, I had a barrage of questions for you and I was like, just focus on those four. Just... <laughs> <laughs> but this has been a lot of fun. So I appreciate you making the time. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. And a huge thank you to Allison Elwood. She is a truly talented storyteller. And guys, as fans of L.A. rock history, you need to see the two-part documentary Laurel Canyon and the History of the Eagles if you haven't already. And for those of you that are partial to the punk rock scene that evolved post-Laurel Canyon days, check out the Go-Go's documentary. All great stuff, and you can find them on Prime. Everything she's done is really a captivating watch. All right, guys, thanks for listening, and we'll see you all at the next episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.